millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, this is Politics on the Couch, and I'm Raphael Bear. I'm a much more relaxed Raphael Bear than the one who hosted the last episode of this podcast, which in case you didn't listen, was all about the doom stress of waiting for the US presidential election to happen. I want to thank Ben Smith again for his calming and sober analysis in that episode, which turned out to be pretty prescient in a lot of ways uh, when the results came in, especially the bit about having to wait a really long time for Pennsylvania to count. Uh, So thanks, Ben. That's a five-star review from me. Okay, technically I'm not really supposed to review my own podcast, but you, you know what I mean. Anyway, we're still in the US for this week's conversation. Well, not all of us. I'm locked down in Brighton, England. Uh, But my guest is in Atlanta, Georgia. So very much on the front line of the election. He is Drew Weston, professor in the departments of psychology and psychiatry at Emory University. He's also a political consultant. But I first heard about Drew around 12 years ago through his book, The Political Brain, The Role of Emotion in Deciding the Fate of the Nation. Uh, It's pretty hard to overstate how influential that text was, and not just in the US. Uh, It laid out all the ways in which liberal left politics was failing to connect with voters, uh, why Democrats kept losing races, Uh, they certainly lost more than they won, and it put all the debating disasters and campaign failures uh, in the context of neuroscience, evolution, and the way messages activate the emotional receptors in the brain. So much of the stuff that was in that book is now completely accepted as canon law when people think about how to craft a good political message. But Drew really spelled it out first and best for a lot of people. Well-thumbed copies of The Political Brain are on the shelves of a lot of British MPs. So I was thrilled when the author agreed to be on this podcast, and doubly so because we had him booked for the weekend after a presidential election. Now, as it turns out, for technical reasons that I won't go into, the conversation kind of sprawled over the whole of last weekend. It straddled the point on Friday when Joe Biden had very probably won the election, uh, and Sunday when he had definitely won the election. Uh, Now, 
that's worth knowing for the context of what you're about to hear. Uh, it is last Sunday. Transport yourself back to Sunday. Biden's win is barely a day old. His success is undeniable and impressive. But just earlier, we had been talking about the resilience of Trump's support, how the incumbent president had mobilized his base, uh, how a lot of Democratic Party messages just bounced off that vast tribe of enraged people who love the Donald uh, and how they weren't going away. So although the numbers were solid for Biden, in cultural terms, it felt agonizingly close. Uh, we go on to talk about the psychology of Trump and Trumpism uh, and the pathology of Trump and Trumpism. And that is going to be a factor in US politics for a long time. But we pick things up just here where I've asked Drew whether we should be looking at the results through a more optimistic lens, given the scenes of jubilation the previous day. What was certainly exciting to see was all of the people who spontaneously just burst out onto the streets in cities all across America. And that, that was something that you, you know, you usually see in DC after, uh, right around the White House after a major election, but nothing like, uh, nothing like this. This was pretty extraordinary. Is there some sense, and I'm thinking of uh, Biden's acceptance speech where he said, you know, just give it a chance, you know, just to reach out a little bit to uh, the, the Trump voters and, and sort of suggested that there should be at least be some benefit of the doubt extended to the idea that you could have a president for the whole country. Uh, my reading of it was that he, he framed that very well and articulated that quite well. What, what was your sense? That was my sense as well. His, I thought one of the most powerful moments of it was when he said something like, you know, I know there are many, many of you out there who were very disappointed. Listen, I've lost some races too. I know what it's like. I mean, I thought that was, it was a, you know, it was a wonderfully Joe Biden-esque moment of just pure honesty. You know, it was, he was honest. He was decent. He was saying, hey, I know what it's like to win. I, this feels great, but I also know what it's like to lose. And you don't have to worry because I'm not some, you know, I'm not some socialist monster who's going to come and scare you and, and, you know, eat your babies. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, um, I'm really just, uh, I'm Joe Biden and, and I'd like to see us be a country again. And I'd like to see stability and leadership again. And is it naive to think that that, that that becomes part of the mandate, you know, in, in the sense, as I say, that there's a sort of a, a quantum of jubilation that a new president can can get that that gives them more authority. Or is that is that going to dissipate pretty quickly? And we're, we're still, you know, as Mitt Romney said, there's still a 900 pound gorilla in the room, which is uh, the incumbent president who, who's not standing down. And that ultimately will be the, the cultural and psychological dynamic of the next few weeks, months, years even. Well, it's certainly been despicable that Republican leaders, other than most, most uh, strikingly George W. Bush, the former president who called to congratulate both uh, President-elect Biden and, and Vice President-elect Harris, uh, he, you know, he's the major voice in the Republican Party, uh, along with Mitt Romney, who previously ran, and John McCain would certainly be doing it uh, if he were alive, as his uh, as his uh, widow uh, supported Joe Biden. Uh, so that you know, the former standard bearers of the party are are coming out and saying, "No, congratulations, come on, guys." This is how we do elections in this country. Uh, and you're seeing a little bit of movement from some of the leadership uh, in the Republican Party. R uh, Roy Blunt, who's a, uh, who's a, one of the uh, in the Republican Senate leadership, 
wouldn't quite say it's over, but he said it doesn't look like anything's going to change. Uh, so the, the Republicans are still really, uh, really frightened of this guy. And they're frightened of their constituents because he, he has mobilized you know, the, the Trump party. Uh, in, in, and we no longer have anything that looks like the Republican Party of, you know, of the last uh, century or so. That brings me to something that I wanted to talk about. Uh, even before we had the confirmation that, that Biden had definitely won, which is this boundary between Trump as a as a populist political proposition that actually you can see similarities with Bolsonaro in Brazil, or you can make draw all sorts of comparisons, and a very specific character temperament that is the man Donald Trump. That it strikes me that over the last four years, there's been a little bit of squeamishness uh, in commentary about talking about him as either sort of unwell or sociopathic or having some kind of a pathology that expresses itself in him. But then when you see now this tension between him going off to play golf and then who are the people around him who are going to talk him down and he's diminished by the loss of office nominally, it seems to me a little bit easier now to say, you know, to at least think about it in terms of, of, you know, in clinical terms, what do you see now when you look at that man? Well, I think you're, you're absolutely right. The question's going to be, does the Republican Party at some point start to step away from from his pathology as opposed to his ideology, which I don't know if there's really any ideology here other than uh, other than just, you know, let's go into every every candy shop we can and steal the candy and, and uh, smash everything up else up. You know, that's that's kind of been his uh, his approach. But no, you know, there hasn't been a lot of open discussion uh, of his pathology, but you know, you really can't miss it. And I mean, I mean, uh, I take that back a significant (laughs) percent of the population uh, can miss it. And, um, part of that I think is that he has brought out the worst in authoritarian personality dynamics in, in, uh, Americans who are who are prone to it, you know, there's a there's an old literature stemming back 70 years in in uh, sort of at the intersection of psychology and political science, which I'm sure you're quite aware of the authoritarian personality, which was a, a massive book written by a number of academics who fled the Nazis and were trying to uh, first and foremost, find out what was the flaw in the German character that led them to follow a man as manifestly insane as as uh, as Adolf Hitler. Uh, and what they ultimately ended up finding to their horror was it actually wasn't a flaw in the German character. It was a flaw in the human character and that um, a good 40% of, of, of the population in America was prone to it if you just poked the bear the right way. And, uh, you know, we saw that in McCarthyism in the 1950s in the United States when, he, you know, if you find an existential threat and you really go after it and you're, you have that kind of paranoid narcissistic pathology that gives you a, a particular kind of charisma, the term for it is actually is malignant narcissism. When you get this combination of malignant narcissism, paranoia, uh, and charisma, uh, which, you know, again, to those of us on the left, 
Donald Trump has the charisma of a, you know, of a, of a rotting horse, you know, after it's, after it died a few months ago. So, you know, it's hard for us to, to see it, but... Um, well, exactly. But the, And that's fascinating because we use this word charisma quite casually with regard to different people. And obviously it applies in different directions, but you're right, I hadn't really sort of disaggregated the different, you know, for want of a better word, kind of taxonomies of charisma before. I mean, I met Bill Clinton and he radiated. I mean, it was a physical, chemical thing in the air where you felt that he cared about you and was had was paying attention to you in a way uh, that is is you know almost had to be have some kind of physiological element as far as i can make out it was an extraordinary thing whereas trump there's no empathy to it so it's much more seems to me to be um a creating a dynamic of 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 bullying and control that somehow activates a willingness to submit and people want to submit to that, which is very different from wanting to, to be lifted up by a sort of warm hearted type charismatic figure. Or, or are they the same thing? These, you know, I'm not really out of my comfort zone psychologically and politically here. Charisma is, a, is something that uh, no one has ever really gotten their finger on, uh, to, to my knowledge, in, in uh, psychology, political science, history, you know, because in fact, that that distinction that you just drew is such a good one. When when uh, when you meet Bill Clinton, uh, and I remember the first time I met him, I had exactly the same response you did. The, the everyone else has exactly the response to him. Uh, I understood in a way I had never understood before viscerally how it is that political that uh, that religious movements develop prophets. Because you know if if you were in a different time and you met Bill Charisma, you would. I mean, Bill, Bill Clinton, that's a great slip. Yeah. Uh, you, you would, you would probably, uh, you would probably have seen him as a prophet because there's a way that when he locks eyes with you uh, there and, and, and he shakes your hand with this sort of, uh, he's a large, a big, big man. He shakes hands with you with, with, with two hands at the same time. And he does not let go while he's talking with you. It, it is almost like, it's like you're describing, it's this, physiological change that occurs that you feel like there's nothing in the room but the two of you. And one of the striking things about it is it's not put on because if he is talking with you, it doesn't matter if the Queen of England walks behind, his eyes will not shift. And you know, I've never met a, a politician like that. It is a genuine connection that he makes. Whereas for, with Trump, you know, if someone were to do an autopsy, take actually take a look at his brain someday, they would find huge areas of black space in the frontal lobes. I don't say that as a as a as a partisan. I actually say that as a psychologist. The neural machinery that's involved in the experience of things like empathy or the experience of which he has none. It, you know, people are are constantly amazed by his inability. For example, when you know, hundreds of thousands of people are dying. It doesn't occur to him that maybe you might want to deliver a, a national eulogy, uh, speak about the mourning of everyone the way uh, the way Joe Biden does, uh, and the way Bill Clinton would have, and the way the way Al Gore was able to do at the Columbine uh, shooting uh, in, in America years ago when a school was shut off. He gave the most beautiful address, and he's not someone who you think of as a terribly charismatic man. It's not just a lack of empathy. It's a lack of inhibition of his impulses. Tweeting without any thought to what the consequences uh, might be, uh, unless it unless he subsequently realizes that he's just tanked the stock markets internationally. That affects him. But I mean, and it, it strikes me, you know, and, and it struck me early on that I, I think I've I've written about this and called it kind of toddlerism, that there is a sense of kind of <laughs> arrested development where if you've had young children and you recognize that sense, 
that you know, that the sort of the a tantrum is really the expression of the gap between experiencing some kind of emotion and being articulate enough to give it a, a form other than just breaking things. And that's that tends to be what tantrum is. And then you see this expressed as foreign policy by the United States or as, as presidency, that because he's actually, a, a, to my eyes, a fascinatingly inarticulate man, he's having some kind of emotional impulses that he actually can't express in, in ways other than this sort of uh, lashing out destructive form. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And, and brings two things to my mind. One is that when you have young children, I don't know if you use this in uh, in the UK the way we do it in England, but parents will uniformly say to their to their little kids who are, you know, really upset or angry or tantruming about something, they'll say, "Use your words, sweetie. Use your <laughs> yeah. words." And, and 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 you know, you want to you want to say that to this guy for the same reason. You know, we're constantly shocked by his tantruming, by his lack of empathy, by his uh, his bullying, I mean, and the way he called people names in the, in the Republican primaries four years ago, and he's continuing to do that. His sort of his preschool bullying, which is really a precursor to what you normally see in psychopaths when they become adults. He's like an arrested development psychopath. You know, he he actually meets the criteria for psychopathy. If you if you um if you apply the the gold standard measure of of what is a psychopath to him, uh, it it includes uh, criteria like conning people, the ability to con. It includes a lack of remorse. It includes a lack of empathy. It includes um it includes various criminal things which and if i remember rightly also this e enormous sense of 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 grievance and being aggrieved is that right or is that, or is that, a, that more the narcissistic dimension when i first got into politics I, w I moved from being a researcher who studied psychiatric diagnosis actually and personality disorders in particular and i used to get asked all the time you know so how did you make the segue from being you know mild-mannered psychologist doing this you know psychiatric research to to being a, a political consultant, uh, and, and I used to I used to joke when interviewers interviewers would ask me this. Well, you know, I, my my research is on personality disorders, so the segue wasn't difficult. I just I've just had to limit myself to narcissistic and psychopathic. If you listen to the criteria for three disorders, these are empirically derived criteria that came from research that we did on just developing paragraph length prototypes of three kinds of personality disorder. I had I, I knew the first two about him, which are narcissistic and and uh, and psychopathic. He met all of the criteria for, for paranoid personality disorder as well. Do you do you want to hear hear what those are? Yeah, shoot. Here's a just a paragraph length description of a psychopathic personality disorder. Individuals who match this prototype, they take take advantage of others, tend to lie or deceive and to be manipulative. They show reckless disregard for the rights, property, or safety of others. They lack empathy for other people's needs and feelings, but they lack remorse or harm for injury they cause. They appear impervious to consequences and seem unable to modify their behavior in response to, response to them. They generally lack psychological insight and blame their difficulties on other people or circumstances. They often appear to gain pleasure by being sadistic or aggressive towards others, and they may attempt to, dominate, to dominate significant others through intimidation or violence. They tend to be impulsive, 
to seek thrills, novelty, and excitement and to require high levels of stimulation. They're unreliable and irresponsible and may fail to meet work, work obligations or honor financial commitments. Now that, that was, that was a, developed empirically from a study of 1,200 personality disorders in North or, or 1,200 patients with, with uh, being treated for personality problems, whether personality disorders or, or the kind of garden variety stuff that you, know, you or I might seek therapy for. But that emerged empirically as a picture a decade ago of what a psychopath looks like. And, you know, you could write that straight from looking at looking at Donald Trump's behavior. Right. Now that, now that answers in a way a question that has been bugging me for a while that I actually raised with a guest we had on, on this show the other week, uh, which I didn't really get to the bottom of, which is to what extent are the choices that someone like Donald Trump makes uh, in any situation uh, part of a conscious cognitive process as in he's evaluating drawing he's responding to stimuli thinking this is now how i would act and to what extent is it a kind of basically animal cunning you know or, or that there is it's all uh, instinctive behavior because we, you know we're used to thinking that operating with some level a bit of instinct and a bit of kind of metacognition where you're aware of the process of judgment and He's obviously very, very good at a certain type of politics. I mean, this is a skill to have done what he's done. And I don't know whether that's the, the skill of, of, of extraordinary intuition or actually there is, there is a kind of a layer, a prefrontal cortex layer of judgment that is also operating and he's actually cunning in a way that you and I could sort of understand cognition. You know, it's a great question. You really, you're asking sort of two questions. One of them being, when he lies, is he aware that he's lying? And as with so many other psychopaths, I think the answer is probably that that sometimes he's clearly aware. I mean, one of the criteria that, uh, that that's used in the standard, uh, the sort of gold standard measure of psychopathy. Uh, it's often people often mispronounce it, but it's uh, you know being a psychopath. One of them you mentioned that kind of animal cunning um, and uh, pathological lying and conning are all you know three of the of the main criteria, along with lack of empathy, remorse, and guilt. What you see with psychopaths is that. And this has been described for oh, 75 years since the first real description of it that still guides the way we think of it today. What you see with psychopaths is that when they lie, sometimes it's clearly conscious deceit. They intend to lie. It's two other things. One, one of them is they don't code their words into true or false. To them, right and wrong means what's good or bad for me. And so when they are saying something is, is, is right, this is how it is, it's what would be good for me if I got you to believe. That's part of it. A second, another part of it is, or I guess we're, we're at three parts. One is, uh, one is deliberate deceit. One is they simply don't. I mean, when you call him a liar, it doesn't bother him because he doesn't he doesn't know what that means. I mean, he doesn't distinguish between between lies and truth. That's irrelevant to him because what's what's only relevant is is he, is he going to get what he wants? But then you've got this this uh, this other component to uh, to psychopathic lying, which. Um, was first described by this observer, Cleckley, who developed the concept of a psychopath back in the 1940s. And that is that when you, when you ask a psychopath a question and he lies about it and you confront him with, wait a minute, but here's evidence. This is, and with Trump, you know, it happens all the time. Yeah, but, but here's a videotape of what you said three weeks ago. Here are the audio tapes of your conversations with Bob Woodward. Uh, he says, no, they're not. 
And, and then they, they, simply, they simply deny it. They move on to other things. They tell another lie to try to get themselves out of it. And it doesn't bother them in the way it bothers you and me. But you, I'll just add that this one more aspect, which you mentioned, which is there's a component of empathy, which is understanding people. There is a form of clearly feeling for people is something that is, is absent in psychopaths like, like Donald Trump. But there is a form of cognition, of social cognition, the ability to understand people, or what's called often theory of mind, or, or um, uh, a terrific uh, theorist in, in the UK, Peter Fonagy's called mentalization, the ability to imagine other people's minds. He can't consciously do that. But psychopaths have this uncanny capacity to figure out what people need and want in a way that then allows them to manipulate them. And it's, it's also, I, you know, I've noticed this clinically with psychopaths is when people will say, oh, they're, they're totally lacking it in, uh, in, in ability to understand what's going on in other people's minds. Actually, when I've talked to sadistic psychopaths clinically, um, they have an exquisite understanding of what's happening in that person's mind and the terror that they are inducing because otherwise they couldn't enjoy their sadism. So they have a kind of a functional model of the way that other human beings are going to respond, which is of immense kind of utility to them in the pursuit of their own needs. But sort of understanding if you don't have the element of any sort of fundament of compassion that would make you respond, you activate some other emotional part of your brain in response to that suffering, it just becomes a very, very effective way of essentially committing fraud. You know, that is why I'm, yeah, I think I believe psychopaths make very good fraudsters because you can, as you say, you can find someone's weakness and, and, and exploit it. And, and the thought that that has been perpetrated quite effectively on 49% of the American public uh, is is pretty alarming to be honest. It is, and I think it has, and, and that you know that gets to what has made Americans vulnerable to this. And I, you know, you you always see the the rise of both left wing and right wing populism at the same time, or virtually always. What he's addressing, uh, and there there are a couple of things he's addressing. Uh, for people in ways that the Democrats have not addressed and have, in fact, in this election, they actually, they really poked the bear on this one uh, uh, in a particular way. And that is, he he is addressing people's genuine feeling of you know, loss of their jobs. I mean, even before the pandemic, loss of industries like coal uh, and uh, and steel and previously the auto industry. So And so you've got this, you've got these generations of working class men who can't do what's fundamental to their self-esteem, not through any fault of their own. They want to work, but their jobs have dried up. And, uh, and you know, the feeling that that creates, there's, a, there's an empathy that, that the left has for that, but doesn't really have for it in the way they should. You know, they have a cognitive understanding, but they just don't get that gut level feeling of what's it like to be a working class guy who can't get food on the table for your family that feels horrible is is it possible that the absence there is is also connected to the issue of emasculation and it's difficult i think certainly for some people on the liberal left to to sort of say or to get into the space that says what's what's stuff what's missing here is uh, a sense of of traditional male potency because that is also 
traditionally expressed through patriarchy and through sexism and all sorts of things that the liberal left would say, well, it's, it's good that we're moving on from this stuff and that these are antiquated uh, ideas that have you know oppressed and repressed women for a long time. It then becomes very difficult to say, but there is a, a sanctity, a value in that in the minds of all these men that we need to show some honor towards because that's how they're identifying themselves. And then along comes Trump and says, I literally radiate alpha maleness in the most primal way. And that becomes a beacon that can do something that, as you said, the sort of the more rationalizing left approach just can't get to. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think he, what there's a the part of his narcissism, which we haven't gotten into very much, you know, what narcissists can, can do is they polarize people. But, you know, a significant percent of people who come in contact with a narcissist, particularly someone who's a charismatic narcissist, find him absolutely repulsive and they can't stand him. And they see his narcissism and his grandiosity and his manipulations and they see them for what they are. But what a narcissist can also do is to bring you into his orbit in a way that you feel like that grandiosity that he's radiating, that strength that he's radiating, uh, radiates to you. And if you become part of him and part of his movement, then, I mean, this is what cults are all about, then you, you, uh, you now have that strength along with him. So it's easy for a leader like him to tap into that feeling of just profound helplessness and emasculation. And you, when you, when you then add to that, the whole issue of race in America and, uh, the the racial reckoning that we had this year, uh, where which began with George Floyd's murder, which even the most right wing men saw that as horrific. They were not bigoted about that. They they saw a modern day lynching in America and hated it. But what then happened was the th that led to a uh, just an outpouring of grievance against white people by people of color and particularly by black people. And there was no space for white people to talk about any feelings in that. Or there was a lot of academic language thrown out about systemic racism that just sounded like you're calling me a racist. And they didn't they didn't know what the what the left was talking about. They didn't they didn't feel like they were racist. They didn't know what they were doing that was racist. They have you know, they have guys they work with who are who are black and who they, they hang out with at lunch, but interestingly, they go back to their segregated parts of town at night. But they don't think of that as 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 racist and they don't have any, they wouldn't want to hurt a black person because they're black. Uh, so there's a, there was an insensitivity to that, that that came along with every time you say systemic racism and don't define it, you are saying to white people, you are a racist. And, and there's a peculiar systemic egocentrism of the left that we can't hear that, that we can't, we can't realize that when we use terms like that, we're being accusatory. When we use terms like toxic masculinity, we're being accusatory in a way that says to men, all right, so get rid of the traditional roles that give you a sense of identity and self-esteem. And by the way, um, you have no, uh, you have no rights to your children if you get a divorce, because, because of course we're going to, um, judges can decide what's on the best in the best interest of the children, particularly in America, and they make decisions all the time that cuts the fathers out. And they, you know, and uh, so you've you've got this. You can't say all those things to people and then expect that they're going to join with you. And, and, and I suppose this feeds in. I suppose this feeds into the idea that there is a kind of 
thrill in transgression it by by supporting Donald Trump. So if you think that essentially the establishment, the power structure has been oriented by liberal values over the last however many generations, and you and I can both argue the ways in which actually it's been immensely conservative and and you know we know all about right. the Reagan hegemony and and and, and it's we, obviously there's it, it's not true that very liberal values have simply decided everything. But I, I, I let's just accept for a moment that there is this perception among a lot of people, and there are reasons for it, that they feel that there is a, a sort of East and West Coast liberal metropolitan worldview that derides their own values and looks down on them with contempt. Then being transgressive, uh, actually causing offence and being and doing things that's, that, that, that cause shock uh, actually becomes a way of asserting your identity and your autonomy uh, and then becomes baked into into your identity becomes a part of yourself and that i suppose makes it very very difficult politically to say to that person had you thought about voting for a democrat <laughs> that is that is so well put and only someone from across the ocean who's a who's a you know a really good observer could have could have could have said that the the um you know what what i think the left in america doesn't get and i, I have to say i'm about as far left as you get in the united states which is probably moderate left in in uh in europe <laughs> but uh but the um you know i'm i'm to the left of most democrats but um, but whenever, as, you know, as a political consultant, whenever I listen to speeches, whenever I um, hear what people are saying from the left or from the right, I try to listen to it as if I were a swing voter, as if I were someone in the center who basically has a left ear and has a right ear and is looking for what resonates on what on on, on, on either or both sides. And you know, the left is not doing a good job. And actually, I won't call it the left. I'll call it Democrats because Democrats in include very centrist Democrats. Uh, Democrats have done a really bad job of of thinking about what their words mean uh, to to uh, to especially to working class white people when when and especially working class white men when they use words like like white privilege in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, to someone who who can't put food on the table for his kids, that is an incredibly dumb thing to do. And that you know what you what you're hearing on the left right now is so much identity politics in the United States. So much of I mean the the, the interviews I watched yesterday, and I was watching them again from the point of view of of I'm always listening as if I were uh, someone in the center who could be swayed to vote, vote one way or the other. And as I was watching these interviews, it was one interview after another about not so much about Joe Biden. Interestingly, they were mostly about Kamala Harris and about how and it was mostly interviews with people of color. It was uh, not uh, a sort of a range of people of color and immigrants. And it was a it was one after another you know, excitement about what it's like to see a woman in this position, excitement about what it's like to see a, a black person in this position, excitement about what it's like to see an East Asian person in this, in this position, et cetera. Uh, and that was wonderful. And as you know, as someone on, on, on the left, I, I thought it was terrific. As someone with daughters, I thought it was wonderful. But, you know, what Democrats don't do is they don't say something like, you know, if you have a, if you have a daughter and you're a man, I think you should. I think you're probably as happy today uh, as 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 your wife is and as your daughters are because because 
this is what you want for your kids, whether they're, whether they're girls or boys, you want them to be able to do whatever they can do. And, and look at this incredibly talented woman who's just risen to the second highest position in the land. It's, it's taken 240 years for that to happen. Aren't you proud for your daughters to see this? But and your country, isn't that a great achievement for America? I mean, that's the absolutely other thing, you know, there's, there's ways of articulating this that say, you know, to invite people who might be wary to say, you know, this is you're invited to this party because America's just, you know, the, the, this the American dream does still operate, and now our mission is to. You know, to open this out to everyone because we know that there are people of every color who feel that they've been locked out of this. Anyway, I'm not a candidate. I don't need to Oh, I, oh I was <laughs> going to say, I was, just about to, I was just about to invite you to come over, become a citizen and run for high office because we really, we, we really need people who talk like you. <laughs> well, you know, I'd be so bad at this. And this is something I wanted to ask you um, because the, you know, there is this fascinating ability that we talked a little bit before, but we talked about this challenge of nuance and, and you know, there are these complex issues where, you know, you can see both sides and there's this apocryphal line that's attributed to Eisenhower, I think, where he said, you know, so, or someone give me a, show me a, a, a one-armed economist because he kept getting economists saying on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, you just want to cheat. And the fact is when you are able to see both sides, you know, you talked about having a left ear and a right ear, it becomes paralyzing if you're thinking about the course of action because you you, you can see how one thing will, will will protect one interest but at the expense of another. And I wonder, again, sort of psychologically and politically, whether it's easy for us, you know, I'm a journalist, you're an academic, it's easy for us to, to lord the capacity for nuance. But is there something about being a candidate and a successful candidate where you have to actively shut that down in your mind? You have to actually turn off your nuanced sort of, land because otherwise you would never make choices and you wouldn't make them quick enough i'd say just the opposite uh, and now I'm, i'll put on my hat as, as a um, as a, a political message consultant is that the task for the right is certainly easier on this you know it's it's easier to say uh, abortion is taking a life and i'm against i'm i'm pro-life really simple i mean if you have no nuance you know it's really simple if you say uh if you say giving uh, uh expanding the, oh, this whole healthcare reform thing is really just socialized medicine all right i mean you've you've said it it's really easy it's not difficult there's no nuance and it's tempting for democrats uh, to come back with a non-nuanced statement on the other side. The way you want to handle that is you often can't do it in two words the same way. You can't come back with a, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-gun. Well, I'm anti-gun. That, that doesn't, you know, to, to normal people in normal countries, that's perfectly reasonable. But, but, but to, you know, in the United States where people have a whole history of hunting with their dad or their grandfather or, or, or their, or, you know, women hunt in America with, with their, um, you know, with their, with their, with their dad, and their granddad, you know? Uh, so when you've got that whole tradition in America, that's not going to fly, but you can say something, uh, something like, uh, look, instead of saying gun control, which is, which is immediately say, I want to control you. I want big government to step in and control you, which just steps right on uh, right into what the, the trap that the Republicans set. If you instead say, look, I'm for common sense gun safety laws. I, I believe that every person who who, has in, who loves to hunt 
and who, for whom hunting has been a tradition in their family for generations, I believe in the right to the, the right to hunt. But I also don't believe in the right for people to hunt your children. Right. I believe in your, I, you know, and I believe in your right to send your kids to school in the morning and know they will come home safely. And you know what? That message beats anything you can say on the other side. Right. I had a bit of an epiphany on this front um, because you're absolutely right. From the European perspective, you think, well, how, how complicated is it? You have this huge murder rate. You can buy, you know, automatic weapons, uh, you know, in, in a store, in, in a street. There's, there's obviously a correlation here, right? So you want to have fewer murders. You, you make it harder to buy guns. That seems self-evident. <laughs> right. um, but it turns out not. And for a lot of, um, you know, Europeans and Brits, that, that seems perverse until someone explained to me that, you know, it is... You know, because of the, the the constitutional legacy and the history of the militias and the various other things and the cultural things you described so well, to be you know, a part of the gun lobby, to be to support the idea of a right to bear arms, becomes part of your identity as an American. And so, when someone comes along and says, "You know, I don't want you to be able to do that," you're actually activating the bit of their brain that thinks about both their own personal identity and their belonging in their country, and you're actually digging in right at that in their sort in their soul the bit that says this is what it means for me to be an american uh, and when i sort of understood it on those terms i thought okay i can see how it's now difficult to persuade them to give up their guns but that's not but, obvious unless you you've sort of lived it i think no that that's exactly right and you know you could go through one issue after another uh like that and that's in fact what i what i spend most of my time doing now is is to go through those issues one after another and figure out how to how to talk with people in, in the center and who are center right. And in fact, in some cases who are actually on the right. One of the things I found, for example, in testing messages like the one I just said about, about guns is unless you own five guns or more, you're likely to endorse what I said over the standard no, uh, uh, we have a Second Amendment that protects the right to own guns. You're likely, even if you're a conservative Republican, to support the idea of common sense gun safety laws. And it's so easy if you simply start out by saying, yeah, look, I've hunted before. And I remember the, when I, for the first time that I hunted, what did my dad tell me or what did my instructor tell me? He showed me where the safety is, you know, and he showed me where, how do you hold a gun uh, uh, when, when in resting position so that you don't accidentally shoot anybody. So, you know, hunters are not against, against gun safety. And if you've got, if you've got, if you're stockpiling guns, uh, you probably aren't for gun safety and we probably should take those guns away from you. That kind of message actually gets through to virtually, you know, to two thirds of Americans. And it's no different, you know, on healthcare. If you similarly say, you know, we have this, you know, this hybrid system like most countries do, except that our, we don't, we don't cover everybody. We leave a million and, you know, 150 million people short, 30 to 50 million with no insurance at all. And then there's all these ridiculous heated debates about it. But, you know, if you say to people from the start, look, two thirds of us have good, good health coverage, health insurance through our employers. And the last thing we want to do is to take that away. But all of us are, are concerned about, about the other third who have nothing and about the fact that if we lose our jobs or if our employer decides, you know what, we're going to get rid of this benefit. Or if you want to start, if you want to start a small business, 
what happens to you then? We've got to fix this system so that if you don't have employer coverage that you like, or if you have employer coverage that you don't like, you ought to have options because choice is really important to Americans and we ought to have choices on healthcare, but we also really ought to have some kind of basic coverage that everybody can buy into regardless uh, uh, regardless of who they are and how much money that they've got. Right, now you That message wins, it wins across the board. Right, now you've, and you've articulated very well why why uh, the the slightly more pious, partisan, and and sometimes too dispassionately academic uh, language that the left can use doesn't work. It seems that Joe Biden outperformed the Democrats uh, across the country, and and some element of that, well, he did, obviously he did, um, because we've got the numbers, and and some of that is might just be because ultimately enough people wanted Trump out, but also presumably he was getting some of the stuff that you're talking about here right. Um, was that your reading of it? Do you think that he's, there's something about either his demeanor or his language that did reach into those places that we've, we've just spent you know, half an hour or so saying Democrats often fail to reach? Yes. You know, um, if you think about what's charismatic about him versus Trump, I mean, there was clearly you know much of the impetus for this voter turnout in, in the United States was we were genuinely afraid in America and clearly 75 million Americans were afraid so that we had record turnout. Um, we were genuinely afraid in America that if this guy got reelected, um, we were seeing the emergence of something like the third Reich. I mean, this was going to be the end of our democracy. Four more years of him, uh, our, our, our democratic institutions, I don't think can weather that even in, you know, even in, in a 240-year-old uh, democracy, and that was what that was what brought so many other so many people to the polls. But the other thing that that brought them about Joe Biden is so he he doesn't have the pathological charisma that uh, that Donald Trump has. He uh, but but he has a genuine empathy, and he exudes not only empathy but honesty. You get the sense that when he's when he's wrestling with some something, he's telling you about it. You know, when he says, when you, when you confront him on, uh, uh, about his, um, about his policies on something and he says, look, that, that's what I, you know, that's what I believed then, uh, it, it was a mistake. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of us thought that way back then, but that's not how I think about it now because it actually did a lot of damage. You know, he's capable of doing that. And, and it's, it's that honesty and it's that, uh, it's what you were speaking about before in his address uh, to, to the nation after he won, his bid for unity is saying, look, let's just tone down the rhetoric. You know, we can oppose each other without being enemies because at core, you know, we're all Americans here. So let's just tone it down and let's just bring things back to normal. And I think that last piece is so crucial to what brought people out to the polls and what's going to, going to flip a lot of people who did vote for Trump, who were afraid of, of all, there was a lot of disinformation about, you know, about his being a, you know, this wild-eyed socialist who was going to do all kinds of crazy things and, you know, and, and, uh, and raise taxes on the poorest people. I mean, not, not on the poorest people because they'd like their taxes. Uh, a lot of people would like their taxes raised, but he would raise, raise the taxes on the middle class. He was going to allow abortion up until, you know, you dilated eight centimeters. I mean, it was, there was all this crazy stuff going on about him. But I think what's going to happen in the next, in the, in the upcoming weeks, and certainly in the first couple of months of his presidency, 
democracy is people are going to give them the benefit of the doubt in part because that's what they do. There's a cognitive dissonance that sets in when someone becomes president, which is why it's so difficult to, to unseat an incumbent, is that you sort of say, all right, he is our president. And you know what? He's not doing all the horrible things that the other side would say he was going to do. He seems like a pretty good, he seems like a good Joe. He yeah. seems like a good guy. It, it, and, and, and there is this, this uh, sense of deference that attaches itself to, to the office. Just the simple fact of having been called president-elect gives the whole, the, the apparatus of the situation a, a different aura that, that diminishes Trump at some level. Um, but the other thing... The that anxiety that people had about his abuse of the office, and the, the the and it was very clear from the outside this this sense that the republic, the values of the republic, were corroding, and it had this awful kind of last years of Rome feeling where you were about to go from democracy into tyranny, and it was that that felt that level of alarm. But interestingly, when you had the coronavirus, you know, pandemic, which other authoritarian leaders would obviously see as an opportunity to apply repressive measures. I mean, you, in this country, you've had a lot of debate about the lockdowns, the things that are, are required to deal with a pandemic, that if you just take the laws that have been written, the regulations, they look quite to totalitarian. You're telling people to stay at home, and they can't meet in groups in one three, demonstrations are banned, all that stuff. It's a, it, it, The only thing that, that makes it not you know, really sinister is the widespread belief that ultimately this is a liberal democratic culture and those regulations aren't going to actually be used to suffocate political dissent. And yet you have someone like Donald Trump who has the the, the character, the style of a demagogue and the temperament of a tyrant who doesn't see the opportunity to actually use pandemic regulation as a way to exert repressive control. So there was a kind of uh, he, was, he missed a trick there in a weird way. It wasn't a sort of a, a dictatorship in the making because his personality didn't really latch onto that. No, you know, I think there was a there was a reason for that that comes back both to his his being psychopathic and his being uh, fairly ignorant. That toddlerism you described, that inability to. Uh, to think ahead, and this is characteristic, characteristic of psychopaths, where they they don't think when they tell a lie that there's evidence right around the bend that someone could pull out. That just doesn't bother them because they don't have that forethought. And what he was thinking about was he was thinking, my ace in the hole for getting reelected is the economy. If I shut down the economy, that's going to hurt me. And he wasn't capable of going the extra three steps in his mind to say, wait a minute, if I shut down the economy and that shuts down the virus, I'm a hero and this is all over. And in fact, had he done that, he would have been reelected easily. And you know, that was it was an extraordinary error. And then you compound that with the lack of empathy for people dying. And you've got that was that was his own undoing. So that absence of calculations, you think there is a way in which, and also you would need to have the rhetorical arsenal to say, if I could articulate the the gravity of the national moment and turn this into a sort of what you know what what Boris Johnson wanted to do and slightly failed to do here, which is to achieve some kind of Churchillian grandeur and say, I will lead the nation through this difficult time. He would have been you know really strong in a very strong position, but obviously he is uh, is in, uh, obviously unable for many reasons to 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 play that character, even if he, whether sincerely or insincerely. No, I think that's right. I, I think, you know, much as, as from looking at, from this side of the Atlantic at Boris Johnson, I can't say uh, he would be, uh, he, he would be among the top oh, 
four or five million uh, Brits who I'd like to see be your prime minister. Uh, he, um, you know, at, at least uh, once he got sick, uh, he was able to say, oh, this really isn't a good thing. And he was able to say, maybe I don't want my I don't want my fellow countrymen to get this. So maybe I should I should now start paying attention to the scientists. The difference between him and Trump is I don't think he's a, I don't think Johnson's a psychopath. Uh, and, and so when when Trump got sick and and got the best the best medicine you could get for it and got as better as he got. Uh, quickly, his attitude was, oh, good, I'm done with this. Now, now I don't have to do anything for the virus because I can't get it again. And it just didn't, the idea that, oh my God, this is really serious. I could have died from this. Now I get it that you can really get, you can really die from this. And this is a really horrible thing that never went through his mind because he, he is incapable of that kind of thinking. His calculation was good. Now I can't get it. So I don't have to do anything to control the virus. And that, that again, that his, his psychopathy was his undoing. And the narcissism, the sense that ultimately the significant thing about COVID was, first of all, uh, that it had happened to him and he'd survived thereby demonstrating w w what a powerful uh, person he is uh, and strong. But also, I thought uh, ex-President Obama called it absolutely right when he said Donald Trump is envious of COVID's media coverage, that there was this thing <laughs> that he couldn't tweet out of the headlines he'd lost his agency in some way to say if i make if i push a button the light goes on if i you know, throw this against the wall everyone turns to the sound of breaking glass and that's you know that's what he that's the way he used the office of president ultimately uh, and suddenly he, he, that that the, the light wasn't going on no matter how hard he pushed a button because people were looking at the covid light on the other side of the dashboard oh, you couldn't have said it better again uh, do, do you want to hear i i i, uh, I read you that paragraph on uh, on what a psychopath is do you want to hear the one on um, what narcissistic personality disorder looks like and yes, what a, what yes, a paranoid definitely. personality disorder uh, looks like. Okay. Now that he's not the, going to be the president anymore, I'm, I'm, I'm now emotionally <laughs> ready to hear what you're about to read. Uh, okay, so these are not the official these are not the official uh, uh, diagnostic criteria, although they overlap with them substantially in either the the uh, the ICD-11 or the uh, or the DSM-5. And and the reason for that is that these are empirically derived and they're richer clinically, but you'll You'll hear. I mean, again, this was this. These were derived empirically a decade ago, and so here's here's narcissistic personality. Individuals that match this prototype have exaggerated sense of self-importance. They feel privileged and entitled, expect preferential treatment, and seek to be the center of attention. They have fantasies of unlimited success, power, beauty, or talent, and tend to treat others primarily as an audience to witness their importance or brilliance. They tend to believe they can only be appreciated by or should only associate with people who are high status, superior, or special in some way like them. They have little empathy and seem unable to understand other people's needs and feelings unless they coincide with their own. They tend to be dismissive, haughty, and ag arrogant. They're critical, envious, competitive with others, and prone to get into power, structure, power struggles. They attempt to avoid feeling helpless or depressed by becoming angry or instead angry instead and tend to react to perceived slights or criticism with rage and humiliation. Their overt grandiosity may, un may un mask underlying vulnerability. People like this are invested in seeing and portraying themselves as emotionally strong, untroubled, and emotionally in control 
often despite clear evidence of underlying insecurity or distress. Uh, did I just describe that? Yeah, that was exactly extraordinary. And you know what? Something that actually occurred to me while you, you were reading that, and I thought a little bit about you know earlier when we were talking about the, the traits of, 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 a, of a, this kind of personality, uh, is how uh, sort of how poorly it connects to or how sort of immiscible rather it is with a sense of humor or a sense of irony because you have to be able to hold different things in your head at the same time and appreciate something uh, subtle about the gap between them and i was thinking this because there's a great video around of of kamala harris uh, just on stage laughing laughing like a drain really enjoying herself and thinking how <laughs> and you see this you know with some other um candidates here a, a kind of unalloyed joy and you realize that you never see or you very very rarely see donald trump laugh he has he's one of those people who understands humor as as bullying you know if you if you if you come up with the, the right nickname for someone and, and humiliate them then that's there's, there's it's a, sort of it's a prank humor bullying humor that is again it's, it's sort of associated with some five six-year-old boys probably but um i just think it's interesting that there's no self-deprecation there's no wit there's no irony is that something that you would expect to be missing from this kind of personality. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, you're, you're getting the same way we were talking about a couple of different kinds of, of charisma, one being a, you know, one being a, a genuine connection with people that makes you want to be un, be taken in under their under their wing, and the other uh, being an identification with them as an alpha male on steroids who who whose grand grandeur you want to share in and whose power you want to share in. Uh, there's something very similar about what you're describing with narcissists is that his level of narcissism is so extreme. Frankly, I've never seen a a, a patient in clinical practice who was ever at this level of extreme grandiosity, extreme narcissism, uh, because it's so alloyed with psychopathy, with psychopathic personality traits. And, and what you see, what you're describing is his profound lack of the ability to his his concreteness in his cognition, you know, is the fact that he's he's concreteness thinking he is uh, he he can't he can't think ahead. He can't imagine other people's perspectives. It is so severe in him that it 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 com he is completely devoid of a sense of humor, or certainly seems that way. Other than as you're saying, you know, bullying bullying humor, uh, but that's not characteristic of narcissists in general because they they often you know a lot of comics are fairly narcissistic, but they they can get you to laugh with them. He can only get you to laugh at people, and and you know that's something different about him. It's definitely the sorry to interrupt. It's definitely the case that his rhetorical style follows the patterns of stand-up comedy a lot. His patter, the way he does it, sounds a lot more like um, a stand-up uh, that the sort of the rambling, the pause, waiting for the punchline. You know, the, the observational way, the sort of the, the casual way he does it. Uh, to me, sounds much more like a, a very bad, scary stand-up comic in a kind of um, New York nightclub than a demagogue from the 1930s. It really does, and frankly, he has a style, and this comes from this comes from not being in politics, from being a reality TV show host, from what from having that that stance as a comic the way you describe it it is when he does that with his with his audiences it's always at someone's expense which good humor sometimes can be I mean, it's often at somebody's somebody's expense uh, but 
his is not a good humored way of being humorous. And, uh, but, but there is a style to it that feels genuine to a lot of people because he's not talking off of a teleprompter. And frankly, uh, I think Democrats would do a lot better to get rid of their teleprompters and get rid of their speechwriters and start talking a little more like him, not in the sense, not, not like him, like him, but, but talking more about, you know, Joe, when Joe Biden simply tells you what his values are and what he cares about, he is so much more powerful as a speaker than when he speaks from a teleprompter it, it, because the value, the, the, you know, his, what he brings to the table politically is just genuine empathy and genuineness and you know who he is and you don't have to worry about him and you like him because you know who he is with donald trump he feigns that in a you know in a way that to people with a particular kind of ear they're taken by it but um but that but you're right it's a it's a very it's a very different style do you want to hear the last yes please yeah what led me to go back and look at my past my prior history of research on this stuff and to see these these prototypes i mean i i knew diagnostically he was a uh, he was a psychopath as well as a narcissistic personality disorder but there's been a lot of writing about his having malignant narcissism uh, and that's not a diagnosis that's in any diagnostic manual, but it's a concept that first came from Eric Fromm, the great psychiatric and political observer who fled, also fled the Nazis and was, um, was among the people who was trying to figure out you know, what the hell happened that people could follow someone like this. And he described a malignant narcissist as someone who has the, the grandiosity of a narcissist narcissist who has the uh, who has um, psychopathic features who has um, sadistic features and enjoys the sadism but who also has paranoid features and um, and it got me to take a look at just what well, I was looking at this paper the other day and I saw the description of a paranoid personality disorder this is not the description in either the DSM or the ICD which are they're fairly thin descriptions they're like uh, what can you what can you get if you spend an hour interviewing someone asking them if they have this do you have this do you have this so you use um, some acronyms there you don't need to spell them out but those are the official oh. diagnostic credentials as it were that's what you're yes I, i'm sorry yes so the sorry. the dsm is the diagnostic manual that's used in the u.s and many other countries and the icd is the international classification system that's used uh in much of in much of europe and and around the world uh and then their descriptions of these uh disorders tend to be thinner because they're they're trying to well we'll, we'll get to the technicalities of it but so here's here's empirically when you when you say all right we're going to group together patients whose profiles look together. It's done all statistically. These profiles look very similar. Uh, and, uh, and let's see what emerges when we do that with, with over a thousand, uh, a thousand patients in therapy or in treatment in residential centers and forensic centers in, in people's private practices all over North America is where we did this. And we, we did something very similar with adolescents and got virtually identical results. So here's what, here's what a paranoid personality disorder looks like. Individuals who match this prototype are chronically suspicious, expecting that others will harm, deceive, conspire against, or betray them. They tend to blame their own problems on other people or circumstances and to attribute their difficulties to external factors. Rather than recognizing their role, their own role in interpersonal conflicts, they tend to feel misunderstood, mistreated, or victimized. They tend to be angry or hostile and, and prone to rage episodes. They see their own unacceptable impulses in other people instead of in themselves and are therefore quick to 
prone to misattribute hostility to other people. They tend to be controlling, oppositional, contrary, or quick to disagree, and to hold grudges. They tend to elicit dislike or animosity and to lack close friendships and relationships because they are not capable of really developing them. Individuals who match this prototype tend to show disturbances in their thinking above and beyond paranoid ideas. Their perceptions and reasoning can be odd and idiosyncratic, and they may become irrational when strong emotions are stirred up to the point of seeming delusional. That, again, this was this was developed empirically 10 years before Donald Trump, but that's Trump, isn't it? I mean, it is, but right. uh, now, is there an extent, I'm trying to bring as skeptical a lens as I can to this, because I mean, I, it's fascinating and, and I can't disagree uh, either with your expertise or your political judgment on this, but is there an extent to which some of those descriptions could work almost a little bit like 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 horoscopes or astrology where we all have traits a bit like that you could read that about all sorts of candidates that you might not like politically and project onto it and say wow this person has this pathology and actually what they have is an obnoxious personality that doesn't quite register at the level of of kind of clinical uh, accuracy or, or or clinical extremeness that you're raising two great questions. So the, the first one is whether these are these are types of people or whether these are uh, spectra or or um, continua or or prototypes that you can resemble to to more or less of a or of a degree. So if you go back to narcissism, you know, in order to be uh, to run for president of the United States and to want to be the most powerful person in the universe. You know, you've got to have some narcissism. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, by definition, you absolutely have to have a somewhat exalted view of your own abilities. Right. And if you're a bit prone to being feeling grandiose when you win and become president, you're not going to feel less grandiose as a result of that <laughs> outcome, are you? Exactly. And so, and, and one of the things we found about about narcissism when we studied them empirically, one of the one of the, the of the sort of items or criteria that rose to the top was actually tends to be intelligent, intelligent, and verbally articulate. It's very hard to become a narcissist if you don't have some talent because the world doesn't support it. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, you don't get the feedback. So, you know, but if you look at um, if you look at other presidents, I mean, there's a great parlor game you can you can play as a psychologist or psychiatrist or mental health professional where you know of, of pin the pathology on the other party's you know president. And and um, uh, in in this case, though, if I look back in my lifetime at all of the presidents who I've seen. Would I say that 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 uh, they all have elements of narcissism? Sure. And again, they have they have the kind of uh, you know great scientists have a kind of they have to have a kind of almost pathological belief that they're right about something that the entire scientific community just doesn't agree with them in on in, until they it turns out they got it right. You know, uh, people who start uh, who who you know Steve Jobs starting Apple. You know. You've got to have a vision to do something like that that other people just said, nah, that can't be done. That's ridiculous. But he could but he could see it. But And an immunity to self-doubt as well. You can't let other people's criticism or judgment of what or you know observations of what won't work get under your skin and think maybe they're right because that's absolutely exactly or if you do you you know you you might feel you turn that sense of humiliation 
into into determination if you're if you're a healthy healthier narcissist. Mm. But um, but if I look back at you know presidents, uh, would I say about FDR who who completely changed the political paradigm in in the United States and the whole notion of what government can do? I mean, what a what a grandiose thing to do. No, I wouldn't say about him in a heartbeat. Would I say that about Reagan for switching that paradigm and saying no, government shouldn't do any of that and that pathological belief that he had that somehow the free market is going to solve all of our problems? Nope. Did I think he was he was mentally ill? Did I think he had a personality disorder? Not at all. But that gets to the second piece of your question, which is, can or should mental health prof- professionals diagnose politicians from a distance? And back in 1964, a number of, of, uh, of psychologists and psychiatrists came out saying uh, that Barry Goldwater was crazy. And they, were, they offered all kinds of, you know, complex interpretations that were, you know, off the top of their head, kind of basically uh, using psychiatric lingo to uh, to explain their own political preferences and prejudices. And after that, a rule emerged in the U.S. that was called the Goldwater Rule that basically said you cannot diagnose someone from a distance. Well, there's a part of that that was that was wonderful because for over 50 years, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health professionals did not do that again because they realized that that was an abuse of, of, of psychiatric terminology. And in fact, you know, I can, I can say to you as an expert in personality disorders, there has not been a, a president in the, in, the, in the 20th century or in the 21st century before Donald Trump who had a personality disorder. I mean, I suppose if I interviewed them and I discovered that there were things that I didn't know, you know about them after, after four years of watching them or eight years of watching them, there might've been, but, but giving them the benefit of the doubt, no, he's the first one. But um, the, the second part of that question is, is there a time when you should break with that? And there, this time uh, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists did break with it they, uh, with a, a movement called duty to warn. And what they were basically saying was that um, there was a there was a 1970s uh, case uh, le- legal case in the United States, a civil suit against the psychologist who uh, who had a patient who told him that uh, he was going to kill a particular person, and he it's kind of a bizarre case. He actually he called the police um, to to tell them about it, but he didn't call the particular person, the potential target, and the his patient killed that person. And he lost the lawsuit. It was the case was called Tarasov, and after that, the Tarasov rule became the became a uh, the law in all fifty states, which is you have a duty to warn if you have knowledge that this that a patient is dangerous to to uh, very speci- a very specific person or people. And this so this movement emerged among people who said very early on this man is dangerous because he has a constellation of personality traits. Um, that you can already start to see how they are dangerous, uh, and we have a duty to warn as mental health professionals. And the the um, the question it raises is, well, can you diagnose from a distance? And what I would say is, this is you absolutely can. That you know what 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 a trained and I again I I don't recommend that most psychologists or psychiatrists or social workers do this because you really have to have the diagnostic skills and background to do this. You can't, it's so easy to just, you know, make stuff up about people you don't like, uh, especially, you know, I mean, it's really, really easy to do that. Say, oh, look at his narcissism. Well, you know, 
Yeah, he, he, he had narcissism. Obama had narcissism. Yeah, and a lot of the vocabulary for mental illness has, has become common parlance and, and, and sort of blended into sort of generic terms of florid abuse. So it gets oh, quite sure. difficult to sort of distinguish these things. And, and we use, you know, we use words, words colloquially like narcissism or, oh, God, that person's so anal. You know, we, we say things like that all the time, and, and it doesn't mean anything. And it's not a good idea for mental health professionals to say those things as if they were diagnostic. But here's where they can do it is, you know, most, uh, I can't think of the last time, uh, that I had a, um, uh, had someone, someone do x-rays or MRIs who was actually a, a, a radiologist, uh, or a neurologist or whatever it was that they were looking for. Uh, those, those things are all done by technicians and the, the radiologist, for example, typically never sees the patient. But what the what what he or she does see, what radiologists do see, is they see a scan and they can see where there are, are fractures or where there is something that's there that shouldn't be um, a mass, or whether there's something that isn't there that should be, say, uh, say an area of of dead tissue in the brain, uh, or of, of a valve that is is malformed, or or a piece of it is missing, or there's a blockage. And as a as a if you're an expert in in um, in diagnostic assessment psychiatrically, it's absolutely no different. That if you have enough speech samples from someone, enough behavioral samples, and with Trump, you know. Uh, he, he really gives us a lot of speech samples and a lot of behavioral samples, and he gives you enough tweets per week that you can diagnose him. You know, to, to, to be able to then say, all right, global judgments, I wouldn't trust those in a, in, in a million years. But can, can, as a professional, can I, for example, say, just as, as a radiologist can see a fracture, I see a fracture. I see what I can see is I hear this guy talking about the people, people dying of, uh, about COVID and he's leaving out the, um, the, the emotional toll of what is it like to spend your last moments on earth, days on earth, dying alone in a room in a hospital on a ventilator and your children and your grandchildren cannot even be in the room with you. You are dying alone. And what is it like for them to, to have to watch on the outside as you die alone? Those are horrific human experiences. When you see that he cannot feel them, he does not feel them. He doesn't speak about them. He doesn't recognize the need to. That is as clear as any radiological scan showing me Metaphorically, I can say there are there are circuits in his frontal lobes that are, I'm not being so metaphorical now, but I haven't exact, I haven't observed these directly. Yeah. Um, but what I can tell you is that there are missing pieces of his psychological structure, which are going to be correlated with 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 neural structure. But I, can, I haven't seen those. so I wouldn't comment on those. But what I can say is there are psychological capacities that normal humans have. And there is there is a, a valve deformation there. There is missing structure that should be there. Now that is so interesting. That and you, there you've raised a whole new. It's going to have to be a different podcast, and maybe one day you'll you'll come back because I, I, what I really want to now there's a branch that I want to go down, which is this question of you know, whether the, the whole distinction between 
individual pathology and psychology and the, and the behaviors that people exhibit and the collective behaviors of people who are in the grip of an ideology that look delusional and start to look like a kind of a collective pathological behavior. So um, let's can we just park that for another podcast another time? We've, you've given us so much of your time. I have two final questions for you, which you can answer quite quickly if you like. One is, um, given that what we have learned uh, about or what you've told us about Donald Trump, Looking just at the next few weeks, you know, this is not a man who who knows humility or who is going to. Uh, we can't predict exactly what he's going to do, but but what does that look like to you as as the reality that he's not going to be president anymore starts to dawn? What would you expect from that kind of character? No, these are very dangerous times because of that, because he has he still has the levers of power and he's already abused them, and now you you have basically hit him at his most key vulnerability. You have hit him at his grandiosity. Uh, you've you've basically said to him what he said to so many people in his TV show: "You're fired." I mean, you know that he got such sadistic pleasure out of it, and you know Americans are feeling some combination of sadism and relief and telling him that right back. So he is at his most dangerous now. I will say I am less frightened about it. I'm less concerned about it than I was before watching uh, Joe Biden's speech and the way things have uh, have happened in America over these last few days, uh, where it was, it was such a blowout, 5 million votes, and he's going to probably get up to 306 electoral votes. He only needed 270. There are only 530. Uh, it's the same number that Trump got. And the Republicans, although they are not stepping up to the plate by and large, a handful of them are, and they're not loudly joining him except for a handful. What what has been much less concerning is that the Biden team did something really smart uh, psychologically that social psychologists have been studying as a persuasion technique for about 70 years, and that is inoculation. They have really effectively inoculated against that by Biden not waiting for, for a concession speech from someone who's not likely to give him one, if at all, for another three months or in, until uh, January 19th, the day before inauguration. And I think he probably still won't give him one then. He'll just go to his golf course and, and leave. But the the uh, not waiting for concession speech and not allowing the narrative to be about what does Trump think? What is Trump going to do? The narrative was, I am your president-elect. Senator Harris is now your vice president-elect. I am so happy. You know, I, I'm humbled that you that you have you have, you've given me this this um, opportunity to lead. I intend to take it to unify us. Uh, I'm speaking to all Americans. He, what he basically did was he wrote Trump out of the pictures of that Trump doesn't have the megaphone that he had before. And what was fascinating was I turned on, I made sure I turned on Fox News yesterday because I wanted to watch for a couple hours what their coverage was. And what was really fascinating is now, I, I, I don't have enough data to read Rupert Murdoch's mind from a distance, although I suspect, you know, he's a shrewd guy who has political leanings that are very different from mine. But I think he could see the writing on the wall. And they hired a Democrat uh, to 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 uh, to crunch their numbers and to make their calls on when to give a given state uh, to um, uh, to one of the candidates or the other. And th that was a fascinating thing to do. They actually called a couple of states earlier than uh, than uh, MSNBC, which is the the left wing media in the United States on television, CNN, which is center more centrist. They um, they called it uh, early, and I was watching them. Uh, I was watching them 
right after the election, as people were out on the street, jubilant in the country, they were reporting that and they were not undercutting them. There was a way that they, they themselves had called the election for, um, for, for Joe Biden and they were legitimizing it. And I have a feeling uh, that directive must have come on high. Do not delegitimize him. You're going to screw up the stock market. Uh, you're going to screw up world markets. You're going to cause violence. Don't do it. We can we can put up with four years of this of, of this uh, uh, of this mild mannered Democrat. Uh, so so they were. That was a huge help from the from from Fox Fox News. That's very much I think what, what I felt yesterday looking at it. The, the difference between there being a sort of a new, an insuperable numerical advantage for Joe Biden and the networks having declared him the w w one of the, for me, almost paradoxical elements of the jubilation. And I was really thrilled at so many levels was that there was something very normal about it and that it was so unusual to feel a normal democratic process in the context of US politics that the unusual normality became a very intoxicating thing. And that's, to me, yeah, I might not have expressed that very well, but that's where the spell was broken. And that was a very important component of, I think, what people were feeling yesterday. I don't think you could have expressed it better. And and it's that, you know, if there was anything that Americans were craving with this election and what they're craving now in their lives with with, you know, with the with the pandemic just ravaging the country uh, even worse than it's doing anywhere else, because we never controlled it centrally uh, and with um, with with all of the job losses and with the inability to just go out and have dinner out somewhere, the inability of younger people, not so younger people to go out to you know, go out to a to a to a bar to watch a sports game. I mean, you, you know, None of that, none of that has existed now for, for, for over nine months and what America and, and the ability to send your kids to school in the morning. So you can go to work. Uh, all of that has, has led to this profound feeling that, that when, or, 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 or wish of when will things go back to normal and what Joe Biden did uh, and what the, the, tr the clearly peaceful transfer of power did was to say, Oh, we're coming back to a period of normalcy. And even people who don't like Joe Biden or were worried about Joe Biden, they saw that he was really smart to, to, uh, to quote scripture, to quote Ecclesiastes, because he was saying to everyone, uh, on, everyone uh, on the right, you know, America is a profoundly religious country, unlike, uh, unlike most of Europe. Um, by doing that, the average Republican had no idea that this guy was actually uh, he actually has religious faith. He's a devout Catholic. And for him to quote from, from a book that they value, from their holy book, I cannot tell you how calming that must have been uh, to so many people who voted against him. This is, I could keep talking about this all night, but it's not the night where you are, it's the day. And you, <laughs> I'm sure you've got lots of other things to do. Um, but you're also writing a book. So uh, do you that wanna, is true. Do you want to you um, tell us a little bit about what we can expect from that? Because I'm thrilled already about the concept so oh uh, sure so the the book is called what's left and uh it's a follow-up to the political brain almost 15 years later you know when i when i wrote the political brain i um it was a book written by a psychologist who'd done some work in neuroscience and you know who was 
just so tired of watching Democrats lose elections and was was the book basically asked the question, how would you talk to voters if you if you understood how the mind and brain actually work and evolved as opposed to have these these crazy left wing ideas that all you have to do is is to is to show people your 10 best facts and your 10 best policies and they'll follow you. And, you know, only, only a leftist could believe that, you you know, uh, it's a, it's a, it's it's a, it's a crazy fantasy of, of that we could all be uh, Mr. Spock from Star Trek and would like to be that, Uh, you know, that we could all be, be missing the emotional circuitry in our brains, which actually is what leads people to be on the left or the right. It's that you, you know, if you if you if you care about what happens to people unlike you uh, in various ways and you can see the common humanity you're more likely to be on the right well on the left well that's a you know th- those are gut level feelings anyway I, I wrote the book uh, with with that in mind and but I had not had practical political experience at the time um, I frankly did not know if the response to it was going to be this guy's a complete fraud. Why is the psychologist think he can tell us, you know, uh, who do politics? And instead, uh, within um, actually, it was even before the book came out. Uh, it, in various ways, it sort of slipped out, and uh, and I was advising presidential candidates, and then it was advising uh, advising people, uh, le- world leaders, and and it, it was just out of you know, sort of out of nowhere. But but the thing that when people started to ask me to consult, the one thing I said was, I will do it, but only if um, if I can work with a pollster so that if I'm giving you advice on how to talk about something, I want to test it because the the best uh, is coming back full circle to where we are. The, uh, I think the best um, uh, the best check on narcissism is empiricism. You know, the, the, the best way to stop yourself from thinking that your ideas are great is, like, is actually to have to test them. And so over the last um, and then eventually I, I learned to do what the pollsters were doing and, and had a, a brilliant programmer develop a program that allows me to do online uh, message testing with dial tests where people are listening to messages and moving their cursor along a bar in one direction if, as, the, as they're listening, if they like what they're hearing in the other direction, second by second, if they don't. And what that allows me then to do is to see how say a thousand people respond who are a representative sample of Americans on uh, second by second to a series of, of, um, of messages on a given topic. And uh, so I've now done that with about a hundred thousand voters on two, three dozen issues. And, uh, and I, I now have a, um, a clearer sense of, of what works, what doesn't work. Uh, surprisingly, a good bit of what I said in the political brain turned out to be right. I have to say I'm more, I'm more surprised by that than, I, than anything else. Uh, it's, it's always reassuring when that happens. You know, <laughs> a poem is, every now and again, I, I, things happen. I think, oh, I'm kind of glad I called that one. We'll, we'll ignore for a moment the times I got it wrong, but it's always, it's always gratifying the times you get it right. It, it is, but, but so, and the I learned I've learned a tremendous amount from both talking with voters, you know, thousands of voters in focus groups all over the country over these last fifteen years in doing these kind of online dial tests and working with pollsters, etc. So the book is going is going to focus on on um, 
three principles of how you would talk to people if you started with an understanding of how our minds and brains work. Uh, and uh, it's going to use those principles to then and then illustrate how not only you would, but actually how you should, if you're on the left, talk about uh, about 10 key issues that are are central in the US, but they're central in, in, in much of the world and in, in not just in Western democracies, but certainly in Western democracies. You know, like things like uh, how to talk about uh, about immigration, how to talk about uh, about healthcare, how to talk about uh, progressive economics, and it is it is a point of view from the left. The, the idea of what's left is also getting at the question that Democrats in the U.S. are now already struggling with a, just immediately after Joe Biden has become president elect, and that is so. What are the values that unite people on the left as opposed to just the coalition of, of people on the left. Uh, and how do we talk about those values in a way that gets us out of the, the weeds of policy descriptions that turn off voters, that they're not interested in? They want to know if you, if you understand and care about people like them. They want to know if you, if you share their values. And those are exactly the things that Democrats are bad at talking about. And that, that it's true of the left everywhere you go, that we really on the left like to speak with precision about policy. And that is such a great thing to do in your think tanks and in your cabinets uh, and quietly among yourselves. But it is not the best way to talk with the public. Um, Drew, you've been so generous with your time and your insight. Uh, and it's been a, we've been really lucky, I think, to have you on at all, but particularly on this weekend where uh, as uh, the future president of next president of the United States said this has been an inflection point in history. Uh, I don't know whether that counts as one of those academic words that they shouldn't use. No, I think I think I think that's a good one. That was a good one. Oh, good. It's really been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Look, honestly, you've been. Uh, it is. Uh, you, that's a lot of time you've given us, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, let's stay in touch. I'm not entirely sure how well we met the unofficial Politics on the Couch target of winding every podcast up with an upbeat, optimistic outlook. But I like to think that the simple fact still that Joe Biden won that election and Donald Trump definitely lost it gives us a comforting blanket of general optimism that will cover not just this podcast and this week, but maybe a few more weeks to come. I'm holding tight to that anyway, and I hope you are too. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all the nice reviews people are leaving of the podcast. That's always very gratifying. Thank you for sharing it. As always, thank you so much to Phil, the producer, for bringing it all together. We'll be back again as soon as we can, as soon as technology and lockdown allow, with another great guest. And that's it from me. Over and out. 